We're in a series uh, on curiosity. And uh, if you remember last week, we, we determined that being curious is a gift from God. Now, you, you may know this already, that I've always been curious about automotive history and the way vehicles and, and things work. One of our men here in the church, a guy by the name of Ed Daith, took a Model A frame engine drivetrain and cut away different parts and pieces to demonstrate how a car works. Now, Ed's curious creativity set the stage for people to be able to learn, especially children. So you turn the crank and the pistons rise and fall, the valves clatter against the crankshaft, the fan spins, the transmission and differential have parts cut out so you can see how the gears come together, the radiator is cut and the water, uh, color-coded water path through the engine block is laid out, even the direction of the flow of water. He even cut one of the headlights in two, so you can see how the wiring harness came up and, and created where the light is. It is a wonderful piece of work, labor-intensive. I can't imagine how many hours Ed spent doing that. Actually, it's on loan right now to a museum in northern Indiana. But because of Ed's curious creativity, it helps satisfy some of our curiosity. It helps us learn. And you see, that's what I've learned. Whenever curiosity leads me on a journey or an exploration, I always end up learning. But some questions that we ask are not so casual as, how does a carburetor work? Some questions lead us into deep waters. They plumb the depths of our inner fears or our deepest struggles. They take us where we desperately seek knowledge, but where there are no satisfying answers. Such is the case with the question that we will explore this week. These are tough questions that have surfaced regularly throughout my ministry years. It's a question I struggle to continually answer, to find an answer. As a matter of fact, in a survey this this national survey, it was determined that if people could ask God one question face-to-face, -face, this would be the number one question they would ask. Greg already introduced it to us in the communion meditation this morning, but it goes something like this. If you are the all-powerful God, why is life filled with suffering, pain, and hopelessness? Now, that's one heavy-duty question, folks. And it sums up several that were submitted during the summer in preparation for this series. One of the questions that you all submitted went something like this. How can I cope with my anger toward God regarding the daily suffering of a handicapped child? Another wrote this from a slightly different angle. Why do bad things happen? And how does God choose which situations to step into, if any? Now, what I'd like to do at this moment is simply say thank you to all for your wonderful questions, say a prayer, and go home. <laughs> but I guess that would be construed as copping out. And I don't want to do that. So there are a few parameters here. There's a, there's a few premises, a few thoughts that I want to guide us through this sermon. I've got to set these out at the very beginning. So here's premise number one, all right? Realize that we have limited information with which to answer the question of suffering. And trust me this morning, folks, I want to know the answer to this question as badly as you do, but we simply do not have all the information we'd like to have to draw a good conclusion. And the information that we do have cannot be adequately communicated in one sermon. As a matter of fact, I have struggled this week trying to, to frame a sermon that would answer the question without, without creating more questions. I'm not sure that that's even possible. But I hope that what 
over these next few minutes may happen is that you'll be at least moved or motivated to dig deeper into this subject because I can't even begin to do it justice in a sermon. I would encourage you to do some reading on your own. Uh, we, there's some great books, classic books. Uh, the Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. Uh, the Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis. It's a classic work. Where is God When It Hurts, Philip Yancey. There's a whole lot of other books. Uh, talk to Janet in the bookstore. If she doesn't have these, she can easily order them. Do some reading on your own because we just have limited information on the subject. Here's premise number two. We seldom see the whole picture, but we draw conclusions as if we did. We seldom see the whole picture, but we draw conclusions as if we did. In an episode of the popular CBS police drama, Blue Bloods, there is a case where the videotape from a subway station shows what appears to be a man pushing a woman into an oncoming subway car. That's how it begins. But as the drama unfolds and they do their detective work, the end of the particular uh, episode demonstrates that just the opposite had happened. When they gathered all the information, the man was actually trying to prevent the woman from jumping off the platform and was unable to do it. It wasn't a homicide. It was a different choice. But what appeared at the beginning of the show was altogether different. Now, I realize that's just a make-believe show, but it illustrates the point of what we do all the time. We take one snippet, we take one video clip of what's happening in life, and we draw a whole conclusion from it that may not be accurate. You see, partial evidence tells one story. All the evidence may draw a completely different picture. But when you draw concrete conclusions from partial pictures... There are dire consequences as a result. Do not jump to conclusions in times of pain or suffering. Remember, God holds a vantage point that we do not. And what sometimes may appear as suffering from our perspective may indeed hold a higher purpose. Now, I was reminded of that in sort of a unique way a couple years ago. When a hummingbird got into our house... Now, I've always been fascinated with hummingbirds. The only bird that can fly backwards. Just, just fascinating. So many different unique things about hummingbirds. Uh, but when you get one in your house, you know, that changes your perspective. And I knew, I knew that the hummingbird needed to get out of the house uh, because if it didn't, uh, pretty soon it, it would die. It was darting back and forth. You could see the, the fear, the panic in it as it was trying to find a way out of the windows. Unfortunately, the windows were higher than the top of the door, and so as it hovered near the ceiling, it could not find the door to get out. So, I, you know, Elsie and I thought, well, how, how am I going to get this bird out of the house? Uh, so I went and got the broom, and I thought if I'd just gently try and guide, you know, push behind with... What a silly idea. I mean, the bird just flitted around the broom and was even more panicked than if I hadn't got the room. So then we tried to get in a big sheet. We thought if we can move a sheet across, you know, cut kind of the room and, and maybe guide it to the door. That didn't work any better than the broom. And by this time, the bird is really in a state of fright. Now, all of our efforts, all of our efforts were intended to help the bird. But all the bird could see of us was we were a threat. The bird was suffering without access to food or water. If we didn't get it out of the house soon, it would not be alive. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. This one will not take deep thought. This one ought to be a ready answer. 
Where is the greater gap? The distance between my brain and a hummingbird's brain or between my mind and the mind of God? That's a given, all right? That's a no-brainer, all right? The distance between my brain and a hummingbird's brain is much less than the gap between my mind and God's mind. We had a suffering bird in our home that refused to let us help because it saw me as the enemy. The bird was wrong. But I couldn't communicate it to the bird. I had no way of communicating it. I wonder if we don't do the same thing with God. How often do we blame him because we cannot see him helping and we assume he's the problem or the enemy? I finally hit upon a plan. I opened the sliding glass door in the room as open as it would be. I went outside and got the hummingbird feeder off of the hoop, brought it in, hung it right in the middle of the door. Then Elsie and I slipped out of the room and kind of looked around the corner and watched. And after a while, the hummingbird spotted the feeder, flew down to the feeder, saw the freedom of the door, flew out the door, and didn't even turn to wave. (laughs) You see, I do not have a vantage point. Everything I tried that day was to help a suffering bird, but the bird never knew it. I'm wondering if God doesn't do the same thing. You see, he has a vantage point that we do not have. What I see in my limited vision leaves me with a perspective that may not be right when it comes to suffering and pain. So I must learn to trust God who sees the whole picture which I cannot see. And that brings me to this third premise, which is simply this. If we had all the answers, if we eliminated suffering and we had all the answers, there would be no need for trust and faith would be non-existent. Well, I I would really like that, you say. I'd, I'd like to not have any faith. I'd like for God to take away suffering. Really? We think that's what we want, but I wonder. If you knew the answer to everything, if nothing was a mystery, wouldn't this life be pretty dull and boring? I mean, could you enjoy a conversation, a ball game, a research project, or even a movie if you knew all the outcome and all the conversation before it happened? How how boring life would be. You see, God has chosen to make this life a journey of faith and trust. In essence, I believe God is asking us, do you trust me even though you don't have all of the answers? Faith is not always easy, folks, but then God never promised that life would be or was ever intended to be easy. Have you ever tried to get a child to take a bite of something really good that you knew the child would like, but they won't? And you keep saying, trust me, you're going to like this. Just take one bite. You're going to like this. This is grandpa holding the spoon. This is not a trick. Trust me. And still, they won't take the bite. You see, for the, for the child, this is a big step of faith. But when you know how good the pudding is that's on the spoon, when you're on the other side of the spoon, it's not a walk of faith. You, you, you've been there. You're, you've been ahead of the child. But for the child, it's a whole different story. That, that, that's our faith journey. God's holding one end of the spoon saying, I'll get you through this. And we just are sometimes reticent to take a bite. I like what author Philip Yancey writes. It says, faith means believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. This year marks the 50th anniversary 
of a diving accident that turned a vibrant teenager by the name of Johnny Erickson into a quadriplegic. And while she certainly understands it was not God's fault, that it was really her fault for not checking the depth of the water before she dived into the lake, the end result was pain and suffering. And yet after living in that broken body for 50 years, this is what she writes. I believe that God's purpose in my accident was to turn a stubborn kid into a woman who would reflect patience, endurance, and a lively, optimistic hope of the heavenly glories above. Oh boy, that's not only an example of faith in the rearview mirror, that's an example of God taking a pivotal moment, a painful moment, and the subsequent suffering of that moment and using it to shape a life to a grander purpose. Many of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm here to tell you this morning, you wouldn't know who she was. I would never know who she was had it not been for the accident and the pain and her ability to take that and use it for God's glory. The impact of her last 50 years are immeasurable. How many people came to know Jesus Christ through her story? And the fourth premise is this. God gives us freedom to choose. Now, do not miss this. We are not mere puppets of a divine puppet master. We are creatures created in the image of God, which means we have the freedom to make choices. And choices may result in suffering. We have the freedom to choose. And if that's the case, then the freedom to choose has to include following God and not following God. Or it's not a free choice. If your choice is good or good or good, it's not a choice. God is not the author of evil, but God has allowed for the possibility of evil. We are the ones that have actuated sin by our choice. And you say, well, why doesn't God just take away that suffering and pain? Do you really want him to do that? Because you see, there's other consequences if God takes away suffering and pain. That means he has to take away choice. Has to take away our freedom to choose. To avoid suffering and pain means that we can no longer choose. All we can do is be his puppets. And the other thing that happens is that we lose love in the process. You see, if God takes away suffering and pain, we lose love because love, love to be love, has to be a choice. For love to be genuine, it cannot be coerced. Uh, theologian Norman Geisler makes this startling observation. He says, since God is love, he cannot force himself on anyone against their will. Forced love is not love, it is rape, and God is not a divine rapist. Love must work persuasively, but not coercively. So when we explore the possibility of eliminating suffering and pain, we must also then need to understand that there are consequences that aren't so good because we'll lose our freedom of choice, we will lose the power of love, and we will become nothing but puppets on a string. Now you may think that these questions and these dilemmas are new to the 21st century, but I assure you they are as old as time itself. Consider the words of the wise King Solomon penned 3,000 years ago. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked men who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. Solomon says, this is not fair. There's pain and suffering and injustice in the world. It's just not right. So, the questions have been asked for a long time. And the truth is, everyone goes through tough times. Death and destruction from natural disasters leave us reeling like what's happening in Texas. And the other times, 
The innocent suffer because of a tragic or sinful choice by other people. A drunk driver, a suicide bomber, a human trafficker. The list is endless. But the cruelty of humanity far exceeds natural disasters. Dinesh D'Souza wrote about the past 100 years of the 20th century. He said, in the past 100 years or so, the most powerful atheist regimes have wiped out people in astronomical numbers. Stalin, Hitler, and Mao have in a single century murdered more than 100 million people. Natural disasters don't even come close to that, folks. The human mind conceives great evil. Sometimes we suffer because of our own choices in life. Lies, deceits, unfaithfulness, the consequences are dire. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering physical pain and suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, then there is a suffering without explanation. Somebody gets cancer and somebody else doesn't. Somebody gets Alzheimer's, somebody else doesn't. A birth defect, and nobody understands why there's a birth defect. A company downsizes, and you lose the job that you've held for years, even though you're the best worker in the company. The list goes on. And then, as if to add insult to injury, we see godless, unethical scoundrels living in prosperity, and all we can do is just shake our heads in bewilderment. Asaph, one of the psalmists, wrote this in Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping. I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. You know what he's saying? He said, I just I couldn't believe it. It just about put me under when I saw how unfair life is. The suffering, the pain. The injustice. I don't know about you, but this is, this is a quandary. And every time I start down this path, it leaves my head spinning. Here's what I can tell you. I don't believe that God orchestrates life's tragedies. He is the father of lights and the giver of every good and perfect gift. Pain, injustice, and disease, even death itself, is ultimately the result of a world broken by our sinful choices. What's more, God has never promised to providentially intervene and protect us from everything bad. You ought to know that from Scripture. Just read the book of Job and it answers that question. And while we are quick to ask the question, Lord, why did you let this happen to me? We seldom ponder the opposite question. Honestly, I don't remember the last time I asked this question. Lord, how many times have you intervened in my life and spared me untold pain and tragedy and suffering that I never knew. Because you see, if you, if you don't have the pain, if you don't have the suffering, you don't know you've been spared. I have, this, I have this thought that maybe when we get home and God unfolds our life from his perspective and vantage point, we're going to see that he intervened and spared us a whole lot more than we suffered. And then the picture will be clear. That God was at work in our life, even when we couldn't see it. Most of you are anticipating living through this sermon. You may be bored to death, but you're going to survive to the end of this sermon, I promise you. And then you'll go home, you'll have Sunday dinner, or you'll eat out. You'll spend the rest of the afternoon doing something pleasant. You're probably already thinking about tomorrow and going back to work. Maybe you've got a special meeting that's going on on Thursday, and you've got your plans worked out. I'm telling you, you don't know anything more than this moment right here. 
Truth is, we might not make it through this service because we don't know. We anticipate that. We, we just don't know. All we know is what is now. We cannot see ahead. Of all the driving conditions here in southern Indiana, I'll tell you the one that is most tense for me. And that is driving in a dense fog at night. When you cannot see beyond the front bumper of the car. When your headlights are swallowed up in the fog itself. And you're, it's a, that's white knuckle driving for me. You're tense. You're not going as fast. You're watching. You're straining. Your eyes begin to hurt. Because you never know when something's just going to pop up there in front of your car. And will you have time to stop? The only thing that saves you on a road like that is that white line on the right-hand side of the road. Man, that is the lifesaver. You're watching that white line in the edge of your lights to get you down the road, to stay on course, to keep you headed where you need to head. We don't, know, we don't even notice the white line on pretty days when there's sunshine and everything is clear. But I'm telling you, when life gets foggy, it's that white line that keeps us on track. Have you ever been on any of these back roads in southern Indiana on a foggy night that have no white lines? That is scary, let me tell you. And that's what it's like to navigate life without the aid of God's principles and precepts. God's word is the white line that gets you through a foggy world. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And we miss a lot of, uh, of value in that verse because we suddenly think of our LED flashlights that can shine a beam about a quarter of a mile down the road and say, well, yeah. That's not what he's talking about. We, we miss the point because when the psalmist is writing this, he's thinking about one of those little clay lamps that you could hold in your hand that has a tiny wick that comes out the top of it that when you light it has about as much light as a birthday cake candle. So the psalmist's picture here is that God's word is a lamp to our feet, but it's not a path or it's not a light that sheds light a quarter of a mile down the road, it's enough light that I can see the next step I need to take. You see, this is a journey of faith, folks. Without God's word, you have no light at all. God doesn't give us a clear view of everything that's going to happen, but he says, I will guide you one step at a time. So where does the light of God's word take us? Well, here's just a few things for you to take home with you quickly. Happiness is never guaranteed. I like being happy. I like laughing. I suspect most of us in this room do. But our culture has, the, has, has convinced us that we deserve happiness. As a matter of fact, advertisers don't sell products. They sell happiness. You realize that, don't you? They sell happiness. The, the connection is, if you buy our product, you'll be happy. But the advertisement is really about happiness. Every day we're flooded with pop culture and psychology that tell us we deserve to be happy. This is our right to be happy. And I think God is pleased if you're happy in life, just like an earthly father is pleased when his family is happy in life. But happiness is a goal in life, or worse, as an excuse for sinful behavior is far from a godly virtue. Happiness is never guaranteed, but it comes as the result of following God's plan. It's a byproduct of living life God's way. Let's face it, some days are not happy days. God's challenge to us is not to be happy, but to be holy. And you say, oh, I don't like that word holy. It's because we don't understand that word holy. We think it means the opposite of happiness. Holiness is the No, nothing could be farther from the truth. Holy means to be separate. Separate. It means to be separated from the things of this world that will harm us and glued to the things of God that will 
Help us. If we want to be happy, you got to get everything in proper order. Follow God's plan and happiness will follow. Now, if you're a parent, you understand that this morning. Let's suppose your teenager stumbles in three hours past curfew but claims to be really happy. So are you going to say, oh, oh, well, you're happy. Well, that makes everything okay. Have a good rest of the night. No, you're going to say something like this. Well, glad you're feeling happy. You better hang on to that happiness because you're not going to know any happiness for the next four weeks of your life, let me tell you. That's what a parent says when that happens because a parent is more concerned about the behavior than being happy. That's exactly what God cares about. He wants to shape our behavior and knows that when the behavior is where it ought to be, happiness and joy will follow. And following God's pattern is the quickest and best way to happiness. Okay, here's something else. Being religious won't exempt you from suffering. If I'm religious, everything is going to go okay. Somehow, our 21st century minds have concluded that if we live right, keep the Ten Commandments, treat our co-workers with kindness, love our families, and don't kick the family dog, then everything should go well in our lives. But I'm here to tell you, goodness and faithfulness will not eliminate suffering and pain. Got it? Just because you love Christ doesn't mean you aren't going to have troubles in this world. The world is just what Jesus predicted. That just comes right off of that, the last statement. Why are we surprised at what happens? Because this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you're going to go through tough times, just remember, I've been there ahead of you. And then in chapter 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Oh, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We focus in on the, you will have trouble and forget that if we trust him, he'll get us through because he has overcome the world. And then remember this, God himself is not immune to suffering. If you think you're going through it alone, you aren't. Dorothy Sayers once wrote this very poignant view. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. You understand what she's saying? She's simply saying God understands everything you're going through because he has played by his own rules. God understands your pain. Jesus endured the cross bearing our sin. What's more, he can bring good out of the darkest moments because out of the darkness of the tomb, he brought the brightness of the resurrected life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. You see, God can take the darkest of moments, the most painful moments, the most sufferable moments, and out of that bring something triumphant. Again, let me quote from Philip Yancey. Suffering can never ultimately be meaningless because God himself has shared in it. All right, I'm ready to land the plane. Here are the things I want you to take on. This is the summary. Okay, you ready? Wake up. This, this, this is for you. Your present suffering, your present pain, will help you prepare and endure future trials. What you're going through right now may be preparation for something down the road that you'll need this for. 
Pain is not terminal. Pain is not eternal. The tough times are temporary. So learn what God wants to teach you. C.S. Lewis famously wrote it like this. God whispers in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Here's something else. Your personal pain produces empathy for others who suffer. If you choose, you can be an encouragement to others who are going through what you have been through before them. That's why our life groups, that's why our support groups are so vitally important in the body of Christ. That's why the Lord created the church to help us get through this world with one another. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Here's another summary thought. Your trials can help you keep your priorities straight. Tough times always remind us of what is really important. This month marks the 40th anniversary of my ordination into ministry. And I can tell you that what I have learned in the last four decades of ministry is this. The best lessons, the best truths I have learned from the painful, difficult moments. Pain is a great teacher if we'll listen and learn. And then here's another summary. Your difficult moments can help you appreciate God's daily blessings. When everything is good, we often take life for granted. But suffering has a way of defining life's beauty. Bottom line for me is this. If I give up on the whole idea of God in my brokenness and sorrow, what do I have left? Absolutely nothing. And so I choose I choose to hang on to God with the idea that I cannot understand His sovereign ways, but because of His love and His promise, someday, maybe not even in this world, and probably not in this lifetime, all of the pieces will come together and my life will make sense. Your life will make sense. If we keep trusting Him, it'll work because only in Him does our pain and suffering have meaning. Do you have your own questions about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible? Email info at socc.org or call 812-334-0206.